Hi guys, welcome back to the Flushing It podcast. I'm going to do something a little bit different this week. It's every podcast I've done so far has been a straight interview of a player, but we're going to do a bit of a breakdown and I'm going to bring in a co-host to help me with this. Um, so this guy, it's, I know him really well. We've got a good bond because we literally spooned for nine months. It's my twin <laughs> brother. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Tony. How are you doing? Mate? Hi everybody. I'm very well. Thanks. Yeah. How are you, Tom? Yeah, great. Thanks, man. It's, did you play yeah. golf for the weekend? I didn't, mate. Do you know what? I haven't played for three or four weeks. I've got, um, obviously, we've got the little one now, but I just, the weather's been so bad. Every time I've been planning to play, course have been flooded or I'm a very much a fair weather golfer. So, yeah, it's kind of gone out the window and I've got rusty. I've gone up from, actually, my new official handicap now is, is um, 0.5. So, I've gone up two shots recently, which is quite handy. <laughs> You're catching me up. Yeah, I'm not far off, to be fair. The new system's nuts, though, isn't it? Like, I've gone up from, I was off plus one, of like, I don't know, three months ago. I've played three times, I think, and I've gone up to nearly two. It's just yeah, insane it's how crazy. that happens so quick. The thing is, you yeah. knock these scores off. Like, I had last year, late in the summer, had three scores sort of in the mid-60s that got me cut from scratch down to plus two, and they've all come off together. So, you know, I quickly went back up to scratch, but now I'm up. I had a couple of bad scores over the summer, which, you know, just happens, I guess, when you're not playing so much. A couple of two, three over pars in there. And all of a yeah. sudden, I'm back up to one. But I'm genuinely quite pleased with that. If over the winter, I can get up to two or three handicap again, that would be nice. Yeah, that's what kids do, you know, isn't it? That's what I've noticed over the last four years since I had Penny. So 100%, mate. Crazy. I've gone from playing like three or four times a week to playing, you know, once a fortnight. And it's it, it's a short game that gets rusty. I still hit the ball fine, but I stand over a pitch from 50 yards and think, what the hell am I doing here again? Yeah, right. No, exactly. I know it is, man. It's... um. Feels the first thing that goes, and a bit of clubhead speed. I think I've lost about twenty miles an hour in the last four years. I mean, we <laughs> never had that anyway, mate. So, <laughs> yeah, thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Struggling to get yeah, over so... one five five at best, best of time with the ball speed. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, what we're going to do with this show is we're going to have a breakdown because the live season just finished, and we're going to do a proper analysis of what's gone on in two thousand twenty three. Um, and where we think we're going in 2024. And the way we're going to do this is I've had an interview with Bob Harrig, who's a really famous sports journalist. He's been really close to the live story and knows a lot of what's going on. So we're going to just carry on with this little introduction. Then I'm going to break into the interview with Bob. Then we're going to come back and I'm going to do the Q&A, which I asked for on Twitter. And we're going to answer as many of the questions as we can. Um, and then at the end, just for a bit of fun, we're going to do a segment called mean tweets where tony's going to read to me some some mean things that people have said to me on twitter and we're just going to have a laugh about it and just remind everyone that it's not that serious it's just golf there's so, absolute belters in there i don't know some crackers what always strikes me is that people seem to think that you are like some kind of big media production company or something or you know it, it's like the polar opposite you're literally a guy that is a tradesman that has a full-time job as two kids does this in his spare time. I mean, you spend way too much time on it if I'm honest, but you're obviously <laughs> it. Yeah. Rosie <laughs> it's funny just seeing people's reaction to you. You know, you're just a random bloke from Southampton. <laughs> yeah, exactly that man. It's um, it is nuts. It, I do find it quite amusing to be honest when people say that I'm getting paid to tweet. Like, I mean, that would be amazing. It's, I don't know why that's offensive. Like, if someone was paying me to tweet this rubbish that I talk, like, that would be the best thing ever. It um, would be. Unfortunately, yeah, I go to, I do, a, well, I say nine to five, it's more like seven to eight. I do like yeah. 13, 14 hours a day grafting B 
building interiors, fitting. I'm glad out. you clarified that because I thought you were saying it was you work for an hour a day. Right. <laughs> maybe Imagine. that's what I do when I start getting paid for talking rubbish on Twitter by by live then yeah <laughs> <laughs> the aside, doing, yeah. you you know a lot about golf and you're one of the most knowledgeable people I know about golf and I think that's good because you come and look crosses obviously you're you're pro you're not so much pro live but you're pro the concept of changing professional golf and that comes from a background in golf from years and years of watching it and seeing the sport and actually playing it at a high level yourself. So you've seen, you know, how it works and, and what is happening with the professional game. And, and you've always been an advocate to change. And obviously that's what Liv is doing. And in particular now, you know, obviously the PJ tour, they're growing their monopoly over the professional game. And so somebody come in and disrupt that. Obviously, there's people that have got their opinions about live and the way that it's run. But at the same time, you're just a guy that loves golf and likes seeing the fact that it's being disrupted and there is something new happening and it's exciting. And hopefully this will better the game for the future. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm glad you said that, mate, because it's it is basically my viewpoint. Like I'm very pro most golf. I, I talk about everything. Like at the weekend, I mentioned the Eisenhower Trophy. You know, that's yeah. the World um, Amateur Team Championships. And it's I just I just love golf and I've I literally watched everything and know so much about every tour around the world. And the biggest thing that actually compelled me about Liv was the investment they'd made into the Asian tour. Cause I was talking when this happened, I was talking quite a lot to um a young lad called TK Chantananuwa, who's yeah. who was at the time a 15 year old Thailand who just won the first been the youngest winner ever of an OWGR event, the, f- the youngest person ever to break into the top 300 in the OWGR, just a hell of a talent. And seeing that he was, you know, being helped out and he then joined Liv and for one event and played on the high flyers and was drafted by Phil Mickelson. It was such a cool story. And Absolutely. it just made me, I was like, look at this opportunity that is given to young players in Asia. And I just thought it was a fantastic thing. And I started getting more bought into the story. Um, yeah. Now, obviously I'm, I'm very positive it, but with it, but there's, there's a lot of criticism as well, you know, and, and hopefully we'll get into that at the questions at the end of the pod. So, um, yeah, so after this brief introduction, we're now going to uh, show the interview with Bob Harrick and um, express his thoughts for a, a little bit, and then we'll get back into the Q&As at the end. So nice one. Next, next up is Bob Harrick. Right, well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Bob. Really appreciate you giving me your time. You've been at the, the front of this story with Liv and you've been to a lot of events um, it's, you know, in the, the last weekend for the team championship, you were there as well. So how was Miami? Hey, I, first of all, the venue is a great venue. Um, it's a good place for them to have that tournament. There's a good vibe in South Florida. You're usually going to get good weather. Um, they've had high level golf before and I think they miss it. So from that standpoint, I thought, um, uh, you know, I thought it was very good for, for their objectives. i I'm not quite sure they did as well as they did last year. Um, you know, there's a lot of competing entities in U.S. sports this time of year, which is why I think you're going to see there's, you know, there's, <laughs> I've written about it now a couple of times. Their schedule is still in flux. It's unofficial. I'm afraid to say this is absolutely what's going to happen. But what I've seen so far is they're going to try to end a month earlier uh, in 2024 to try to avoid some of the glut of, of other sports they have to compete with. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And, and you've written some really good articles on what's going to happen in 2024. So there's some more venues, which uh, you've, uh, I think you've reported first on Hong Kong and South Korea. Uh, how, how much do you think that's definitely going to happen? Is that, does that look like it's going to be a fixture next year? 
the fact that they put venues with them suggests to me that those are done. Uh, South Korea's Jack Nicklaus Golf Club, uh, I believe that's where they played the President's Cup uh, in 2015. Um, the other one, I believe, was Hong Kong Golf Club. You know, they're, they're going back to Sentosa in Singapore. Uh, obviously, they're going back to the same place in Adelaide in Australia. Um, they're going to, to uh, in uh, Spain, they're going to Valderrama. There's a new venue that the Telegraph has reported. Uh, I guess it's in sort of middle England, maybe Birmingham being the closest. Uh, yeah, you talk to, it's you talk to her, so it's like North Birmingham, JCB right. Club. So, you know, the, the international venues and, and Mayakoba also, they, they seem to be, you know, international in terms of not being in the U.S. They seem to be set. Um, the U.S. venues, except for the Greenbrier, um, they've, they've got that on there. Um, they also did say Las Vegas Country Club um, and, and then uh, Merido in Dallas for the season ender for the team championship. Like, I have a hard time believing that they would put the venue if those weren't done because the other ones are not. They don't have a venue. And that would be there's a Florida venue the week before the Masters. There's also Nashville, which follows the U.S. Open. I believe it's Houston precedes the U.S. Open. Uh, those those are the ones that don't have have venues so far, and uh, you know, so we'll, you know we'll see we'll see where that goes. That to me le leaves open the possibility that maybe those cities aren't even aren't even a done deal that they're negotiating, but that's where they'd like to go. Yeah, so you've reported, I think, that South Korea would be the individual final. Is that right? Correct. That's that's so, that's their working schedule right now. A couple of weeks before the season-ending team championship, that would be quite something, and would suggest that there's something going on there, and maybe they're going to get some South Korean players to come and come over to the Ironheads. I mean, that would be the assumption, wouldn't it? There. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly possible. There's been a you know the 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 ease of movement outside of the U.S. has been a lot has a lot, been a lot better. Um, clearly, Live wants to get into Asia more, you know, what was a bit interesting this year was not a single Japanese player uh, was involved in live. And it'll be interesting to see if they make any inroads there. Um, I think it's also interesting that you would play the season ending individual event, um, you know, not in the U S but yet they've done that the last two years by having it in Jeddah. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I would, the other thing is when you're playing in in uh, in Korea, it's from from the U.S. East Coast. It's about a 12 hour time difference. Um, it would make a lot of sense for them to put that on live over the air TV, you know, because a lot of golf fans here will watch golf at night, you know, at, at night and into the early hours. And, you know, they, they're missing out a little bit. I realize you can stream it still, but I still think there's an audience there that isn't into that. And uh, so, you know, I'm just sort of curious to see if they make any enhancements or any inroads there with their TV provider. Um, and if they're able to bring on some more players, you know, like like they've been discussing here, they've in Miami, they sounded very confident that they had a bunch of guys wanting to come over and they don't have enough spots. So we'll see. Was that just from the players or was that from the officials as well? No, I mean, Greg Norman said it, too. You know, wow. Greg, Greg talked for the first time since the June 6th framework agreement was announced, at least the first time publicly or to the media. 
And, you know, he was very bullish on live and, and something, something must be going on that, you know, part of it is, I think they've, they've told him not to speak, but obviously he got permission to speak or they wanted him to. So something must be going on that they felt confident enough to let him say those things. Bubba said what he said about interest for the teams. He's had, I think he said, you know, what, uh, 10 to 20 inquiries about buying his team. And look, that's the model. That's, that's the live model, the franchise model, getting money back into that. I just think the timing's curious. I mean, until this whole framework thing is resolved one way or the other, either you're going in with the PGA tour and maybe live becomes, you know, reformatted in some way, or you're not, and you're going to just keep doing what you're doing. Who's going to buy a team until they know what what's up with that? They, they, they have to know what they're buying. So until this gets resolved, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of tire kicking. You know, I've heard other examples of agents bringing prospective money people to the table who, you know, some of it is just vanity. Um, they're willing to throw money into something and see where it goes uh, and, and maybe not all that worried about turning a profit. Um, but yet they're probably not going to just toss it away without what, without seeing that, yes, there is the potential for a return down the road. And I think those things are kind of up in the air still, like how are we going to get the return sell sponsorships? I mean, one thing I did note in Miami, you probably saw it on TV or, or on, on the streaming, whatever you were watching behind the ninth green, there was a hospitality venue that was all, um, smash smash GC, which is Brooks's team. And Brooks actually sat there on Saturday a little while when his team wasn't playing. That's when he now, was heckling Bryson, right? Exactly. Heckling Bryson yeah. when he was <laughs> on the green. So like what, what I'm kind of curious about was the teams apparently have been given the latitude to sell sponsorships, to sell tickets, to sell hospitality. So did smash their team sell that venue? You know, like was because their name is on it and, and did they actually go out and get somebody to buy it for X number of thousands of dollars? I mean, that's sort of what they are asking teams to do and what they are op opening up to do. That's something that's not available on the PJ Tour. That's something that's completely different at Live is the ability to sell a package like a pro-am thing or a meet and greet or you know, giving lessons on the range or bring them in the team room, whatever it is. And so I just wondered, you know, I never really got an answer. Did they buy that uh, hospitality suite or sell that hospitality suite? I'm sure they have to give some portion of it to live, but then does the rest of it go into the team coffers? I mean, again, this is probably a story they should have tried to tell. You know, we, we yeah. we've been not been given a lot of the details on things that might be good for them. And that they just all sort of leave us guessing. It's kind of remarkable how little they tell the, the media what's going on. Like every time you ask them a question, they don't seem to have answers for it. And, and I was surprised, like over the weekend, you guys were all there. And then they dropped the press announcement that there was a new CAO on Monday. But that was just, I was just so surprised. And I couldn't believe they did that. I don't understand why you wouldn't have done it on Thursday before the thing. of It's something that they should be celebrating. It's something that they should be happy about. Like, like just, just that alone suggests, wait a minute, some guy signed on as the CEO to a league that we're not quite sure what it's going to look like in a year. 
Like that should be a confidence boosting announcement for them. They should have introduced him to the media. They could have said, look, we're not going to, he's not going to answer any questions. They could have done that. They could have had him in the booth on the broadcast where obviously the questions are not going to be hard hitting, but he could maybe sort of explain his vision, his background. Look, his background's impressive. You know, the things that he's been in are the sorts of things that Liv is probably looking for. And, you know, obviously running franchises being, you know, he was part of uh, Madison Square Garden, which, uh, you know, has the Knicks and I believe some interest in the New York Mets, possibly, you know, there's, there's a lot of things intertwined there, uh, you know, stadiums, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff, background, he's got a law background, <laughs> he's, he's, he's got a lot of bona fides there that, that probably are going to help him in this job. Well, is he going to take a job, like thinking that it's going to be over within a year? Um, and so that to me is something, why not announce it? You know, like that's yeah. the whole point of it. Like, and did they think that would have taken away from the tournament? Hardly. I don't think so. If anything, you know, the stuff that was going into the tournament was the stuff that their own players said, like Phil talking about, you know, he was sort of accusing the tour of interfering PJ tour, interfering in the OWGR application. He had said that before, um, Actually, you know, I asked a question to Phil and he went there. I did not ask that. I asked him if he thought that Liv should, should uh, you know, reapply for OWGR. You know, like, should they try to make the changes and reapply? And he took it to, hey, look, you know, the PGA Tour is involved. You know, they helped squash it. You know, they've got benchmarks to meet with OWGR for their TV contract. So he took, totally took it down that road. I mean, that's a controversial road to take. Right. You know, he didn't really answer the question. And then he said he's had there's more players and they have spots that are looking. I'm, I, I know they're coming. Bubba's comments about the teams, Joaquin Neiman talking about not being in the majors and how disappointing that is. You know, there's a lot going on outside the golf anyway. So why not, you know, announce your new COO and at least get a headlight out of that, that from their end, they should view as positive. Yeah, and, and the most interesting point about that is, as you say, that a guy like that isn't going to take a one-year job. And we've been told all along from the PJ Tour side of the negotiations for the framework agreement that Liv will probably they'll have decisions and and will will make it go away next year if they want to. And that's obviously not happening if they've employed a guy of his background who's right. going to come in such an important role. So it's just yeah, never I mean, either either Liv is going to go on as it is, or if they somehow do get an agreement and they fold it in then, you know, they're still going to have a league to operate. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously there's so much about this that we don't know um, that it's hard, it's hard to, to, to come up with any definitive, you know, uh, explanations for it. I mean, I'm almost, I'm almost loath to because even the people that we can talk to, you wonder how much they really know. You know, on, on the live side of things, you're talking about Yasser, and maybe some of his closest confidants. And is any of that trickling down to the live people? Maybe, but yet maybe not all the information is. And on the PGA Tour side, they've been pretty mum. But there have been clues when they, when they talk about outside investment. You know, does that, does that go hand in hand with the PIF and, PIF's investment? Or is that because they're looking to replace the PIF? You know, yeah. because they're thinking that the deal won't go through. I mean, I could make an argument for both. Obviously, there's there's the argument to be made. If they're looking for other investors, they're gonna they're trying to to make up for what they're not gonna get from the PIF. Or you could say, look, they just want them to supplement the PIF 
it might help with their regulatory issues in the with the U.S. government to show, hey, look, it's not just them. We've got these other American companies or American-based companies that are also chipping in to sort of, you know, maybe soften the PIF influence. Um, I could see either either way, you know. But uh, a lot a lot of people have opinions on on on, and they range from every end of the spectrum of this. Yeah, well, it feels does feel like that's the two options you have. Either the PIF come in and say a minority investor of maybe twenty percent alongside the PGA Tour, Fenway and Endeavor and whoever else wants to put money in, or they just stay doing what they're doing and just invest the money back into Live and just go head to head against the PGA Tour. And it's, I mean, no one, like you say, no one really knows what's going to happen. But I can't see a deal going through at the moment. Just all the talk from both sides mm-hmm. just feels like they're nowhere near a deal. But yeah, certainly, I guess we we'll have to wait and see. I'm certainly, I don't think they're anywhere near having it by the end of the year. So then the question mm-hmm. is, is do they extend it? Do they extend it for three months? Okay, well, that, that would maybe give you some hope that it's that there's a chance that it will happen. But if they just cut it off, well, then, then 2024 becomes a free fall, free for all. And we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, um, I, it's probably in the PGA Tour's best interest to keep negotiating. Do they really want live out there, you know, you know, trying to pick off players all throughout next year again? Do they want to go through that? I mean, it's almost inevitable that some guys are going to go. And, uh, and I would think it would be even more if there's no agreement. Yeah. And if they're going to get investment from other like venture capitalists, they'll need to get a return quite quickly. And if they start losing some of the top talent, like say Liv does throw 500 million at John Rahm, um, what's that going to do to the PJ Tours product? Because he's such a massive deal. He's the master champion. He's one of the biggest international stars in the game. Well, maybe the biggest international star in the game, apart from Rory. So what happens to the tour then? Like, they need to get returns. So it just if it goes back to being hostile again, I can't see how that's good for anybody. No, and, you know, look, if, if without, without the PIF, the tour still wants – they can't get this outside investment without a for-profit vehicle. And they've made it clear they're not going to make the PGA Tour a for-profit vehicle. It's going to stay a non-profit. So this, the new PGA Tour Enterprises has to comprise something else that's going to make money. What would that be? Some sort of team thing? Does TGL get included in that? Do they play some sort of worldwide series of events that are for-profit that include players from all around the world? I mean – would live players be included? Probably not if you don't have an agreement. Whereas you could see that happening if there is an agreement. And I keep saying if there's an agreement, the tour is going to want to have guys like Brooks, Bryson, Dustin Johnson, Cam Smith playing in some of its bigger events. It's going to want them in the Players Championship. It's going to want them at the Memorial and, and at the Arnold Palmer and places like that. Their signature events. Well, how does that happen? I mean, because there's no, those aren't going to be team events, so you know, for live to for live to go on, it would almost have to be condensed. Well, is is live and the PIF even in favor of that? Are they okay with a with a smaller live of team events, maybe eight of them instead? Does playing eight live events still allow you to play um, on the PJ Tour? Would the, would these guys be waived and not have to play fifteen? I mean, you can just imagine. I mean, these, I'm, we're just scratching the surface on things here of all the intricacies that are involved in trying to figure out something like this. And for all I know, I'm talking like way out of school and this is nothing like they're even thinking. You know, yeah, um, 
it's very possible. I mean, like I, I leave that open for all of this, like the schedule that I've written about. Who knows if that is absolutely locked in for live because they've changed their mind on so many things and things are so fluid. Unlike the PGA Tour, which really has to have those things locked in a long time in advance, they, they're a little bit more nimble. You know, and so if, if something falls through or they don't like something at the last minute, they can change it. Yeah, exactly. Is that's that's kind of the good thing with Lib is that they are so flexible and they can just change whatever they want to. Um, you know, because they obviously talk to the players, but they don't have so many to appease to because there's only 48 guys there. So they don't have to have an entire right. membership of 200 players, which they have to keep everybody happy. So it's a lot easier exactly. for them to get stuff done. Um, do you think this year, obviously they've just completed their first full season. Do you think it was a success on and off the golf course or a success on and not off? Like, What, you, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, would, I would say it's... it's um... I guess it would be a moderate success. I don't think it was a great success because I'm not sure they really built on any momentum. They had, they had a couple of great overseas events, obviously Valderrama and Adelaide were really, really good. Uh, you know, probably beyond expectations. And it showed, I think one of the things they're striving for, which is to bring golf to underserved golf markets. And those are places that were dying for it and loved it. Singapore, I was not there. I understand it was decent. It was good. They played a great golf course. They haven't had like a DP World Tour high-level event there for a while. That was well-received. Um, I'm guessing the same thing would happen in Korea. The same thing would happen in Hong Kong. Um, you know, you were at Centurion. I thought it was better than the first year. The first year, of course, they only, they only had about, what, eight weeks to pull it together. Uh, they did they did very well to do that. I, I think it was a, a little bit better, but for knowing that it's an area of the world that's highly into golf, um, I thought it was a little underwhelming. I, I thought really? that, that that in in Great Britain you would do better than that. Um, even you know because like the Scottish Open wasn't anywhere close to there. The Open wasn't really that close. Um, I don't think they have a DP World Tour that was within that area. And I would have thought more people would have come, but but yeah, I, I say that. But they, they capped the tickets, didn't they? Because um, they did. No, I don't want to be. It was fifteen thousand a day because the infrastructure, like you have to, you have to gamble on how many people you they think is going to go. And to and, be honest, they scaled down the infrastructure a little bit from the first year. Yeah. They went wild the first year. I think they reined it in a little bit, um, and so you know maybe this is just anecdotally to me. Uh, you know they they. I thought it was a very good tournament. I, I guess my overall point is, is that that's a place where it's going to typically excel. Obviously, in Spain, it's going to excel. Australia, Singapore, probably Hong Kong. Um, you know, obviously, for, for reasons we all understand, they have to go to Saudi. They would be far better off if they could play somewhere in Riyadh where there's a bigger population base. I don't think it's good for them that their season-ending uh, individual event is being played in front of, you know, a couple of hundred people, 500 people or whatever, thousand at the most. But um, they're also in a very, very remote area where that golf course is in Saudi. So it's not going to be that easy to get people there in a, in a country that's really not a golf country. If it were a, a football match, it'd be filled, right? They're, they're mad for soccer, but they're not yeah. so much that way yet for golf. So, um, I, you know, I just think that, that there was, 
because their fields were locked in all year, um, because they didn't have a big bang of, of top guys coming over in the off season, maybe it was felt a little lackluster. I thought it was good for them that they had some of their top players step up, you know, obviously, you know, Taylor Gooch, who maybe not would have been viewed as a top player, but he, he was an emerging player winning three times cam doing what he did uh, you know, Bryson winning twice, including shooting 58 uh, Dustin Johnson won a tournament Brooks won twice. Like that's kind of what they need. They need their yeah. stars to shine and, and that, that helps. So they, in that regard, it was good. Um, and, you know, but as far as some of the off the course stuff, you know, I, I thought they could have, they could have tried to make more news. They could have tried to, you know, this whole OWGR thing really shouldn't have been a surprise to them. They knew six months ago that OWGR was, was pushing back on access points. Uh, you know, the, the lack of turnover with the tour, you'd have thought they would have gotten together and said, okay, look, do we want to do this or not? We need to, if we want to get OWGR, we've got to announce a change to our, our, our system for next year and get people behind it. And actually, you know, I've said, call their bluff, you know, in other words, if, if you've basically been told that some, look, what are all the talking points that people have scoffed at with live? They actually turned out to not be that big of a deal in terms of OWGR. We could all argue whether or not 54 holes is okay, but it's not a deal breaker with OWGR. 48 players, there's tournaments that play less than that that get OWGR points. Obviously, they're part of a bigger tour. You're penalized for having fewer players. That's not an issue. Peter Dawson even said the 36-hole cut isn't an issue, but the player pathways is an issue, the lack of turnover or perceived turnover. Like, it's hard to know right now we know four guys are getting uh, relegated. How many from, from uh, 25 down to, uh, what was it, uh, 44 are not going to be there? There's going to be some because they're not going to be retained. But you can't know for sure based on the way the setup is. So you yeah. need to have a, I think you need to have a more solid um, way of showing that players are coming on and off every year. So increase the spots at promotions event, maybe even give another spot to the international series. Look, that thing's turned out to be really impressive with the money that this, they've pumped into that. So why not throw a bigger carrot out there? It's pretty hard yeah. to win the whole thing. Well, what if you gave spots to two or three guys? Okay. And say, then instead of having only three guys make it through the promotions event, how about five or six? Now you're talking about seven or eight guys who are turning over every year. And you've heard me say this many times. I've talked about it. I've written about it. I think they could easily have a weekly qualifier system. I mean, smarter people could sit down and figure out the best way to do it. But if you had a renegade team every week of guys who qualified, that would be cool. Their whole thing true. about growing the game and offering other opportunities is right there. You could charge a lot of money for it because the guys who get through are going to be making a minimum of $120,000. And if their team does anything, maybe you let them play another week, you know, yeah. but what that does in terms of ranking points and the math, it changes over players every week. And that helps. That is a big, that's one of the big sticking points with OWGR is that you don't change the names. 
even those even those signature events on the PJ Tour, which have 50 guys pretty much locked in, they're going to have probably a turnover every week of 10 to 30 guys, uh, probably more like 10 to 15 that will be coming on and coming off between signature events. That's that is good for OWGR. Yeah, a Monday queue as well would it would be like entering the lottery. Is so many people would enter it because say it's a thousand thousand bucks or whatever to get in, and like you say, there's guaranteed 120k potential of winning four million. Then everyone's going to do it who doesn't have a PJ Tour ranking, aren't they? It just I would, it's a no brainer. I would make it. I would make it five thousand dollars and yeah. make it a hundred hundred players. And obviously, you know, it's a lot of money. What is that? It's a half a million dollars. It, it would defray some of their costs. They could do they could do a good thing and give some of it to charity if they wanted. Um, you know, make it make a big deal out of it. Where's the charity money going? Hey, by the way, these guys are coming on for this week. You know, I even said Liv could own the team. Call it the Renegades. Brand it. Have uniforms that are Renegades or some other yeah. some or the Rogues or whatever. You know, some sort of the Outliers, the Outlaws, whatever, and call them that. And it could be different guys playing for it every week. But, you know, maybe there's somebody that would be interested in owning that team just because it's going to get exposure every single week. You know, like yeah. if there, what, what about, you know, there's going to there's and, and on tour, DP World Tour, PJ Tour. There are always these kind of cool stories of guys who qualify and they have a neat backstory. And so Liv would have that going for it every week. You'd have that team in front of the media on, say, Wednesday, you know, and, and, and what if one of those guys wins? <laughs> that's that's what know, I was just or, thinking. That'd be insane. Or, or, you know, it, let's, say, let's say if they finish top five, they get to come back the next week or top three yeah. or whatever they want to make it. All I'm saying is, like, there are things out there that they could do. And Gary Davidson last week said they, he doesn't think they'll go to 15 teams but there is a possibility they could add a 13th or 14th. My feeling there is that they, they see the opportunity to give two teams, uh, uh, you know, to get two more captains on board. And that would right. make sense in that way. But why not just make one of these help you fit the narrative for OWGR without OWGR, you're going to have a much harder time attracting young players. Exactly. You and know? the biggest the biggest criticism from fans is that it doesn't mean anything and there's no context. So the more people you have, like the bigger turnover of players um, and the more career development there is for younger guys to qualify for the major championships, the more context there is and the more people have storylines to actually buy into. At the moment, they're relying entirely on their product, which is only a, well, a year old because it's the first full season and there's no history. So it's not their fault. Like it's obviously just brand new, but right. you need to have that history. You need to have that career development. You need to have that turnover of players so that people can actually buy into it and have some context to what they're actually watching. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and having, having OWGR points would, would give them some reason to care. A guy like yeah. Gooch winning three times, you know, if he could have, if, if he could have been where he was in the OWGR and getting points for those wins, you know, it, it, things would be changed dramatically. You know, now as it is, the fourth, you know, he's 215th in the world or whatever it is. You know, how much would winning those three tournaments help him? I don't know that he'd get back into the top 100 because they wouldn't have enough points, but at least he'd move up. And a yes. new guy starting out would have, you know, the ability to have some 
you know, some place to try to gain traction by playing well. Yeah, like you know, a David Bree. He's, he's yeah. one of the best young European players at the moment. He's 21 years old. He's won on the Asian tour, but he doesn't have any access to majors at the moment because he's not going to get enough OWGR points through the Asian tour um, unless they throw some qualification, like the Open Championship might do an open qualifying series event on the Asian tour next year. But they just have to get that sorted out. It's the, it's the biggest thing that they should be concentrating on this winter. Forget getting new players in, forget all the branding, all that stuff. They have to get access to majors. It's the most important thing because it adds context. It gives the players something to, to, you know, to work towards. It gives opportunity to the youngsters. And then it just, I think it, everything will develop from that, you know, from that point onwards. Which is why I was surprised when I asked a couple of different people last week, should they or will you resubmit your OWGR bid? They didn't answer the question. Like, why would you not? Why would you not? Like the moment you heard that, why would you not be pencil and paper in a room trying to figure out how can, how can we adhere? And I know they have said, and I believe them, they've asked for clarity and not gotten it. I agree. That's not good. If the OWGR really feels that they're missing out on some players and they should help them comply. I get that. But if they're not, you have to take the chance. You have to take the chance. You, you are the ones on the outside. You have to take the chance, call their bluff, add players through the promotions event or international series, weekly qualifying, whatever you need to do. You know, call, get the smart people in the room, the people who understand OWGR. You know, look, they're one, of, one of the guys, Cho Min Thant, who's the, who's the CEO of the Asian Tour, is on the technical committee of OWGR. Clearly, he could talk through the math with them and, and try to help them ex- understand you need to get to 25% turnover or what, what have you. You need to have an influx of new players every week and come to some conclusion that's viable that they present to the OWGR. They could make it public to us. And then it's on the OWGR. If they deny them again, then it really is on them. You know, for all the faults of the OWGR and look, you know, you could call, they could say it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not fair because, you know, it's made up of the majors and, and, the, and the leaders of the tours. Fair. Okay. I get that. Um, you know, it doesn't want live. It doesn't want a competitor, whatever, but I mean, they have opened the door by telling them where they're not compliant. And now I think you have to sort of put something out there and make them say yes or no again. Uh, and if they say no, when you've made those changes that they've said are necessary, even if they weren't specific, then it becomes on them because then how much do they really want these guys to be playing in their tournaments, especially knowing that it's such a hard road to get there anyway. You know, mm. if you're, if you're a hundredth or 125th in the world and you win a live event, you are not moving right back into the top 50. You won't, that won't happen. You're going to have to have, you really, you're, you're certainly not going to gain a lot of ground finishing eighth or ninth. You're pretty much no, going no to have to be top, top three. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what you're, you're asking for, right? You want them to beat most of the players. Okay, fine. And if, if you have a system where you have a little bit more new blood coming in every week, that, that only helps. 
Yeah, and you can see how the OWGR works now for lower-ranked guys on the Asian Tour because I did the maths recently, and to get into the top 50, you'd effectively have to win every single Asian Tour event that you played for the 14 or 15, whatever the divisor is, through the year. And that's, I mean, that's just insane. So the, that would be very similar on Live now that people like Bryson are ranked outside the top 200 in the world. Like, they'd have very similar points allocation. It'd be even worse because it's a small field. So, right. Yes, yeah, so, um, I understand that we're short on time. So, um. A couple of predictions this time next year where do you think we are in the world of golf Ooh, wow boy that would be wild i'm i am going to go with the fact that the way it looks right now there won't be a deal okay so if there's not a deal that means live doubles down they they actually throw even more money at trying to get players and we'll we'll probably know that early in the year uh and that the PJ Tour and DP World Tour are, you know, sort of on the fly, scrambling to put something together for 2025. That would be some sort of world-based events that are in this for-profit model. That would be enticing for their players to play outside of the PJ Tour and DP World Tour. They would be combined in some way. There'd be big money at stake. Um, there'd be some international events. Uh, but it'd be out, but, but it, I don't think it can happen until 2025. And so Liv will have had a head start on them, you know, because my sense is, is we're going to know in the first quarter next year at the latest where this is going. And if it falls apart, well, then Liv just keeps going. And now the tour has to, PJ Tour, DP World Tour have to fight back with the outside money that, you know, that they're trying to get and put together some sort of program that we'll all be interested in following as well. Yeah, it's very similar to what I can see happening. Like you can see the moves that the PGA Tour is making with the uh, European Tour already and what the next step is for them to take the best events. And they've all been pushed to the end of the PGA Tour schedule. You can kind of see that happening already. That you know, the, the events like this week in Qatar or the Race to Dubai finals and all that stuff end up becoming almost sanctioned by the PGA Tour and sort of part of the schedule in a way. It's, that's what I can see happening going forward sure. for them. Um, but yeah, again, I don't see a deal either. So Liv will just push forward. They'll throw more money at it, probably more money at the Asian Tour. Um, hopefully they'll have resolved some issues with the access to majors because I think that is the pivotal thing for them going forward. So they have to spend the next four or five months just nonstop phoning up the majors and the organisations and saying, can we get access to players? Like, I'd be phoning them every day if I was working at Liv. Yeah. You know, you, can you, how many spots are you going to give us? We deserve spots. Look at Taylor Gooch playing great. Rising top 58. We're proving ourselves. How many spots can we have? So, right. I mean, I that's something we really didn't talk about, and and you know is, is really sort of where live is pivoted. Um, it's it's risky because there's no guarantee they'll get it, um, but I do think there there is an argument to be made that you could do something where you give them, say, three spots, the top three players, not otherwise exempt. Like in other words, it doesn't do you any. You know, obviously that helps Taylor Gooch. But a lot of the other guys are already exempt for some of the majors. It has to go maybe say three, the top three, not otherwise exempt as long as they're in the top 10. Yeah. It might even be better for them to come up with a series of events next year in which to do that. Like you take the first three live events and say your top five guys uh, otherwise not exempt are, are uh, or, or a bottom of five, you know, We'll take everybody in the top five who's not otherwise exempt for the Masters, say, you know, and they could, you know, the U.S. Open could do it from the beginning to the U.S. Open. 
if they want, if they don't want to rely on this past year, that would give players who are new to li- to live an, an opportunity for, for yeah. 2024. It's the other option I was thinking about the other day is that they could also, which would help boost global golf is they could give the spots to the Asian tour and they could put them on the international series and say, we're going to give free spots to the Hong Kong open or the Singapore international series. And all of the guys from live who are not exempt would then be, you know, compelled and motivated to play in that event. Well, you and know what? That, that would the boost case. global golf. They, they did have that this year. They weren't Asian tour events. That, well, no, one of them was they had, they gave four spots to an event in Hong Kong that was not the Hong Kong open. And it was, that's the one that Poulter and, and Stenson played in. Oh, that's right. Was, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. There was four spots to into the open. It was the, you know, the open qualifying series. And then they also had another one in Korea for three. Why live guys didn't go to those tournaments. I don't understand. Like only yeah. the only two from live went to Hong Kong. They were un- undoubtedly getting paid and Stenson's already in the open. So it was, you know, the only one who had a chance was Poulter. And it was like, it was like the top four, not otherwise exempt, you know? So that's an, you know, I, I would think they should make an international series event. One of those, if you're the open should really yeah, do I that agree. for that. They, they don't, they don't have, they took away the order of merit spot, you know, which is unfortunate. Um, do you know but, much you about know, that? that? Like, do you know why they did that? Well, my understanding the first year go around was because the Asian tour really was decimated by COVID and their, their season they had a, they had a hybrid season that was part of the end of 2000. They basically uh, didn't play in 2001 until very late in the year. And then they had a couple of events early in 2002 and there was only like six or eight events that counted. And that was, that was, you know, Tom Kim, I believe yeah. led the order of merit, but he got he into the open right. through the, not through that, but through the open qualifying series event that I believe was in Singapore where he won. He had a, he had a two week stretch there at the very end where he finished first, second or second, first, one of those events got him in the open. He won yeah. the other one that helped him win the order of merit, which did him no good for the open, but that was before the world ranking points changed. And he crept up into the top 100 because of that great play at the end. At the time, the Asian tour was getting, I believe, a minimum of 14 points for the winner. And this is the, the OWGR changed this. They took away the tour minimums. The Asian tour had 14. The DP World Tour had 24. Those are gone. And so that's, that really hurts the Asian tour. Now, like a guy winning a regular Asian tour event is getting like five. I think yeah. an international series event is getting seven or eight. You know, so there's that's a different story altogether and why they did that. But Tom Kim got into the top 100. He started getting a little recognition. The PGA invited him because he was in the top 100. He got an invite to the Byron Nelson. He had a little bit of success and boom, you know, but that story is going to be hard to have happen given the way the OWGR is now. I'm not saying they need to change it, but. You know, there, there was something to giving these other tours some minimums to help to help their guys move up a little bit. Yeah, it's a good example of how much it's changed for the Asian tour is um, it's uh, Jazz Jananatawans. I think it was in 2019. He won the Indonesian Masters and he got enough points that got him into the top 50. And then he was invited to the Masters on the back of it. And yeah. the, in last year, there was six points available for that. 
and that right. would not boost you anywhere. Like that would just right. be completely pointless. So. All the tours around the world have been hurt. The, the yeah. only one that's been helped is the PGA tour. Now I always point out, it's just the math. Like what they're doing is a fairer system than before when, when they were only rating players who were in the top 200. Now it's every player. So obviously a PJ tour has more depth. And when you add up all the points for every player, that's going to look better than an Asian tour event where you add up the points for every player before the Asian tour event got a boost, because let's say it was 140 players and 30 of them were in the top 200. And that's probably a stretch to say 30. Well, the field strength is only based on those 30, not the other 110 who are way below. And so that boosted them up. That's probably not the way to do it. Now that you're now that you're rating every player, and obviously only giving points based on that on the total number of points accumulated, strokes gained, world rating. Obviously, 144 players is going to be more more than 50. That's why there's that disparity. And then what they do is they divvy up the points, uh, you know, sort of like they do prize money. You know, they're they're doled out in that in that regard. So you know. People think that they did this on purpose to help the PJ Tour. It was really in, in, it was in the works for five years. They they were they were in the weeds with changing it for five years, way before Liv came along. And you know, I, I, I there's some unintended consequences that came along with it. Um, it's it's probably a fairer system because yes, the best players are going to play in the PJ Tour on the DP World Tour, but what you've done is you've effectively now forced all these other lower tours to have their guys slowly graduate up onto the tour above them. You know, for, for a guy who who's on the DP world tour. Now you really need to use that opportunity to get to the PGA tour. You're going to have a hard time getting there on your own. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's why they formalized the pathways now. And it's everything, which it looks like they, I mean, the European tour is now a feeder tour effectively, and I've been very vocal about it, but I can totally understand from a player's point of view, why they've made that pathway, because there's no other way now of getting into the majors apart from getting to the PGA tour. Certainly the masters is effectively going to have the entire criteria is going to be PGA tour members next year, because no one's going to be getting in via the OWGR. So it'll be, yeah, fascinating right. to see how that develops. Um, yeah. Well, I think uh that just about does us, I think, Bob, because we sort of run out of time. So I really appreciate you, you coming on and really appreciate the conversation. Happy to do it, Tom. Thank you. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers, Bob. You, you as well. Right. right. Well, that was some really good thoughts there from Bob. He's been so close to this story that he hopefully has um, helped sort of fill you all in in, in what's going on right now and, and where we expect Liv to go and obviously where we think expect the framework agreement to go next year as well. Um, he's Bob is he's just so good at this sort of thing. If you can uh, check him out on Sports Illustrated and read his articles, then you, you'll get to know pretty much everything about the live storyline is in there somewhere. So definitely check him out and check him out on Twitter as well at Bob Harrick. Um, Bob, right, come across, so, Bob come across very well there, mate. I have to say, yeah, he's he is um, so knowledgeable. He's just I think we could talk for two hours about live to be honest because he's been imagine. so close to the storyline. Is we only had a certain amount of time, but I mean that could have been a whole podcast in its own. We could have just kept going, but eventually you have to stop. So yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It was, it was good, right? So the next feature we're going to do the Q and A, which I asked for on Twitter. Um, Tony's got a bunch of questions. I think he selected the best ones, and I'll just give you a straight, honest answer about everything. So are you ready, mate? Yeah, great. So question one, very important question, I think. 
are you remunerated directly or indirectly financially or otherwise by Liv or any agent acting on its behalf? Oh, I mean, this is an important question. I think we sort of touched on it a bit at the beginning, but it's I have not been in the golf industry or making any money from golf for more than 10 years now because I got my amateur status back in 2012. And since then, I went into the industry of refurbing interiors on super yachts. And I did that for a couple of years and I set up my own business. And that's what I still do now is I have literally no financial interest in this at all. It's I do it because I enjoy it. It's I don't play golf anymore. And a couple of years back, I thought to myself, well, I'll set up a golf account and just start talking about it because I wanted to still be attached to the game. I still love golf. I'm literally obsessed with it, like most of you will be. And so I just set up a golf page and started chatting rubbish about golf. And I have no idea how it's got this big. Like, it blows my mind. And to have now, I mean... I think I've got 100,000 followers across all platforms and that's happened very quickly because I don't know in May in May 2022 I reckon I had a thousand if that and it's just gone nuts and I don't know why but I really appreciate everyone who follows me and listens to what I have to say because I enjoy doing it and that is the bottom line the only reason my motivation for doing this is that I enjoy talking about golf and I enjoy speculating on things and I enjoy putting my point of view forwards because I think it's important that the fans do have a voice and hopefully a lot of you will see that and and read that sort of through my posts and through my social media um it's it's one of those things where you look at a lot of these accounts and they're very clearly like all these guys which push adverts or you know have sponsorships that are also with the tour or whatever like they don't seem to get the same questions that I get about whether they're paid and and they are literally paid by somebody it might not be directly from the tour or whoever, but they are they have financial incentives to say what they say. But well, I do not have that in any way whatsoever. I literally have no financial incentive in this at all. So please, please believe me. When I talk positively about Liv, because that seems to be the reason why everyone seems to criticise me, I talk 95% about other golf and 5% about Liv. But people just don't understand why a big account likes Liv because no one else seems to. Well, the reason is I just enjoy it, right? So... It's okay. It's okay to like live and it's okay for me to talk about live. And it doesn't bother me if you say that I'm paid because that would be cool. I'd love them to pay me, <laughs> but they don't. It's <laughs> <So, laughs> a little plug there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Come on. Come on, guys. Sort me out. Come on, Greg. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's actually funny seeing how quickly it's gone because you started off just uh, doing these, these funny little memes. And now all of a sudden it's like, you know, you, you, you're getting involved with high profile discussions about, the absolute integrity of, of, of the tour, um, you know, and discussing it with players themselves. And it, it's one thing that really struck me was I was in, uh, I was at Sawgrass in, in March for the players and played the course afterwards and bumped into Billy Horshaw and Aaron Rye. And I just casually mentioned, because I'd seen him comment on a couple of your things that I was your brother and he immediately was like, no way, man, that's your bro. And I was like, yeah. And we just had a little bit of a chat about it. And he seemed like a really great guy. Um, and, you know, yeah. it's funny, me, us, these little, these lads that used to just muck about the local muni. And now you're chatting to some of the best players in the world. I, I love seeing it. So fair play It is to insane. Me. Yeah, it blows my mind. I've actually, Billy re- responded to my, um, my tweet yesterday about the European tour and I sent him a direct message instead and said do you fancy doing an interview because I think it's about time that we had this discussion where people who are on polar opposite opinions 
can actually have a chat and it can be frank and open, but it's not personal. And you just talk about the subject matter. And he seems quite interested. So hopefully if you listen to this, it might put a little bit of pressure on him to do it because I think the fans <laughs> would like to hear it. And I would love to talk to Billy about his thoughts about the European Tour, the PGA Tour and live, and, you know, his life as well because he's got a fascinating story. And maybe we can chat a little bit about West Ham as well. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you so know, hopefully, hopefully cracking person to have on the pod. I agree totally. So Billy, yeah, if you're, if you're listening to this, Give Tom a shout, mate. Let's get it sorted. Yeah, sounds right. Move on to the next question, then, please, mate. Right. So I've got um I've got a few few other questions here. So um someone says here we always enjoy the speculation on disgruntled PJ Tour players who might jump over to live. Now it's not so much of a question, but I think I'm interested to hear your opinion on that. Who was that from? This was from six oh three underscore Brown eighteen seventy five was their handle. All right, sweet. Yeah, he's a regular commenter. He's a good lad. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the speculation among players is obviously the big question. It's do we see any superstars going over? I mean, a lot of them are signed up with TGL now, and it's widely understood that if you go to the TGL, you're probably not going to join Live. So that rules out a lot of these guys. But obviously, Brandle said a couple of days ago that he was a little bit worried about John Rahm. Rahm seems to be the one that maybe would, you know, be be inclined to go that way but I still don't see it he's been adamantly against he doesn't like the product he said that openly um I spoke to Phil at Centurion and, and Phil seemed to think that Ram wasn't interested so if he is that would be a very quick change so I don't really see any of those guys in the TGL going um from like other players Liver going to South Korea next year they're also going to have it according to Bob as the last event of the season so you can you have to assume that they're going to have South Korean players for that to be worthwhile. And Tom Kim is now on TGL, so I don't think it'll be Tom Kim. And Siwoo Kim and Sung um, and Sung Jai have uh, they just recently got their military military um, service sort of has now been pushed by because they won the Asian Games. So they're now free to carry on with their careers. And and I can see maybe one or two of them going. Um, it would make a lot of sense. And, and Kevin Nahr is currently running the Ironheads. Um, he was on a promotion tour there a few weeks ago, and they've obviously now got this event coming up. He's just lost Siwon Kim, um, who's been relegated. And the other one that he has there, which which possibly could move on, is um, Scotty Vincent, who could go to a different team. He's got his status guaranteed, so he's not going to be relegated, but he could just switch and, and move to another team. Um, other than those guys, I genuinely have no idea who's going to go. Like European tour players make sense. Like maybe Adrian Moronk or Ryan Fox and, and players like that would make a lot of sense. But I have got absolutely no idea. So it's all just pure speculation. And yeah, of yeah course. we'll just have to wait and see. Absolutely. So there's, there's a question here from Old1SG, which is at Guthrie Allen. Are teams going to have title sponsorships or just hat, bag, shirt, ETC? It's a good question. Um, the Majestics have kind of led the front of the sponsorships and they've had three deals this year uh, with a bag sponsor, a clothing manufacturer, and I can't remember the other one. But it, it don't really matter. But there's only seven at the moment, or might be eight for the entire league. So they've got a big scope there that they have to sort of branch out into and, and get more marketing for those teams. I don't see title sponsors happening soon, but if they sell the franchises at some point in the future, then obviously they will have a title sponsor. And that would make a lot of sense. But there's no, I mean, Bubba was saying that he's had 10 to 20 inquiries about someone buying the range goats it wouldn't make sense for anyone to buy or sell right now because from a buyer's point of view they don't know what's happening with the tour with the um, framework agreement going through and from a seller's point of view 
they haven't maximized the value of the team. So it doesn't make any sense to sell it right now. They should wait for another year or so. And um, the Saudis are very patient with their investment. So I think that's what they'll do. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've got a question from Charlie Wu, which is at Dreaming WL. Why do the majority of golf media and journalists choose not to report on live events? There's so many good stories that could be written, but there seems to be a blanket boycott just to totally ignore live. Is there an explanation? And I guess, you know, that's a very good question because it, it is true. You don't see it reported. There's nothing on Sky Sports News. You know, we never see anything on there. Um, and obviously, you've got the bigger channels like Golf Channel, Golf.com, ETC. Um, why do you think that is? It's a, It's been a hot subject, this. And what was interesting was Rex Hoggard from the Golf Channel actually went to the event in Miami. So they are, they are now covering it. But as well as they have a lot of these guys are worried about press access. And I have this from a couple of journalists themselves, not Bob. Okay, I wanted to make that clear. It's not Bob. He does not care about whether he, you know, who he upsets. He just does his reporting. But there are guys that are concerned that if they, you know, cover live, that they might struggle to get access in the future. They want to talk to Rory. Someone literally said that to me. It was like, I want to be friends with Rory. I, I need him to, to, to give me access. I need to be able to ask him questions because my job relies on it. So there are reasons why they're not doing it. But another reason that I've noticed over this year is that when you talk about live, you don't get the same in interaction and engagement. Like last weekend over um, the Miami event, I lost followers. And I've spoken to a couple of publications that have said that they just don't get traction with the live golf side of things. They get loads of traction on the storylines off the golf course. But when they post about the bir birdies and bogeys, like people just aren't really that interested. And so that's a big reason, like in the de um, defense of the media, that's also a big reason why they're not talking about it. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense. At the end of the day, they want clicks, don't they? And they want people to like their publications. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's it's something that you'd think that they would cover some of the stuff, though. You know, some of the headline winners and things have been remarkable. Like Brooks's turnaround has been absolutely phenomenal. There was people talk about him being finished. And then this year he's gone and he's finished, you know, should have won the Masters, really. He's gone and picked up the US Open. Like, he's just, he's just the next level, isn't he? Yeah, but that story was, I think that was told quite well. People were very quick to dump on him at the beginning of the year. But then when I need he to correct turned around, there, the PGA, not the US Open. Yeah, he won the PGA. Um, yeah, but when he did win the PGA Championship, then people were talking about him and, and there was a reasonable amount of media coverage. But um, I, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I, you don't want to accuse people of stuff, but it feels like they need, they need media acts, they need media coverage to, to like build up the context and make people buy into what's actually happening on the golf course because the golf is delivered this year. Like it just yeah. has. Like Bryson shot 58, 61 over a weekend. Like that's Massive, insane. Isn't it? So good. And he was earlier this year, he was struggling with his form. And, and that is a massive storyline to have Bryson back at the top of his game is huge for golf. And next year will be fascinating to see how he gets on at places like the Masters because it was only two years ago. Everyone was just awarding him a green jacket because he was hitting it so far and his strategy around there of um, being long off the tee and the scientific approach to putting, people thought he was going to win a green jacket. So that build up to the Masters next year, he should be one of the main guys that we're looking at because I think he could win next year. Um, yeah, and the other storylines, obviously, you've had Taylor Gooch has won three times and just been fantastic. Um, Scotty Vincent was the qualifier from the Asian Tour and he's managed to keep his card for next season. Yeah. So that's a brilliant storyline, which I haven't really seen reported anywhere. So I, I don't know what that's about. Richard Bland, obviously... 
um, was huge news when he won his first uh, DP World Tour event at the British yeah. Masters. He just kept his card again. So he's now going to have his third season on live as a 50-year-old. And, yeah. he's, you know, it's just a remarkable story. He's flourishing, it's, isn't he? We obviously know him really well. So we kind of have bought, bought into his storyline anyway. But but Blandy's like, you know, he's completely transformed his life at the end of his career. And yeah. it's just it's just been amazing to see. It really has. So yeah, yeah it's been uplifting for so many people that know him as well, you know, especially for some of the younger lads that might have played with him or seen him up at Stoneham or at Dibden. You know, they see this guy there who's who's worked so hard. He's been an he's an incredible advocate for getting down the practice range, isn't he? You know, his his swing is is phenomenal. And these yeah. young lads can really look up to that. He was when I was like trying to make it, he was the guy that, that really inspired me because you hear stories about him going down the driving range with four buckets of balls and standing down there for six, seven, eight hours at a time, just working on one string drill. And that's how you get good. Like exactly you hit balls, you hit lots of balls and you keep grafting. And he got there and won his first event at 47. Right. So, um, and, yeah. yeah. There's too many kids, I think, that turn pro and just assume that they're going to go and win stuff, but they're not actually working hard on their game. You literally need yeah. to be down there from first light until dusk hitting balls because if you're not, somebody else is. And you watch the PGA Tour and, and you know, the Ryder Cup and obviously live. The guys, they go and play around. They might have shot 65, but they're still, they hit straight to the range. They're not going in and celebrating it and telling their mates about it. They're working on their game. They're working on what wasn't good and they're just making sure that they're constantly trying to improve. And that's how you become the best in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, but yeah, the next question, mate, because I think we deviated a little bit from Sorry, our um, deviated. Okay, so I've <laughs> so got, got a couple good. of fun ones coming up. So Ian Moore at Easy Moore, is your favourite pub the Old Mill, the Langley, or the Lord Nelson? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that one, Easy. Um, it's obviously the Old Mill. Um, the Langley was a good crack when when Chris and uh, Lee had it, but the Old Mill was just one of a kind. Definitely the best pub in the area, and they serve a good point too. I'm with you there, mate. Obviously, the Langley is where I met my now wife, but I still think the old mill is the best one in the area. Yeah. And Kev Pellin, obviously, now we know very well from up at Stoneham. So who is the better ball striker? Is it you or is it your twin brother, myself? <laughs> I mean... Be honest, mate. Be honest. I mean, I don't even know how you're playing now. We haven't played for so long. <laughs> It's been ages. I, I mean, you are you've always been a better ball striker. I've had to work very hard to um to be the ball striker. But if we flip that question to putting, then there's only one obvious <laughs> answer, isn't there? So, That's yeah. not fair. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'll give you that one. One all. One all, definitely. Next right. question, mate. Well, I was thinking now. Um, you know, I've picked, I've cherry picked the questions. Should we move on to the some of the tweets that you get sent from from the trolls? <laughs> yeah so mean tweets this could be fun yeah go ahead buddy so you've got um you've got an account that seems to have a bit of a hard on for you we've got this byron maxwell and he absolutely <laughs> cracks me up i have to say he doesn't leave you alone one of my favorites was you've got the video with uh bryson dechambo when you uploaded it and the first comment underneath was this this Byron, and he just said, holy ugly. <laughs> and <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry, I mean... but that did genuinely make me chuckle. I guess it's funny for me as well, because we look very similar, but... <laughs> That's exactly what I was just about to say. If I'm ugly, then you're ugly. So unlucky, bro. <laughs> See, he, I understand this guy slides in your DMs. So we've got, on Sunday the 9th of April, your parents aren't proud of you. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, well he's not wrong, is he? I mean, they're more On proud the of you than they are me. The twenty-first of April. How does it feel to be a sheep, you pussy wagon? <laughs> What's that even mean? Twen- that sounds 20- like a good thing. The twenty-third of April. I know you actually see this. You're a effing loser. <laughs> and then the twenty twenty-sixth of April, he just sent you some poo emojis. Was that it? That's it. <laughs> oh mate, I stopped. I stopped looking at his messages actually because obviously it was just just hilarious. But I, I, they did make me laugh. Is that all of them? No, that's not it. So right, we've got Michael Rivolo, who commented on your. So you did an interview with Richard Bland, and he's quote tweeted it, and he's put. Well, now I know why this guy doesn't have a name or picture on his profile picture in relation to your video. <laughs> What's people's obsession with being ugly? It's, I'm not sure Rosie would uh, would like to hear that. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it just makes me chuckle, mate. I feel like you get trolls and it's like they have no actual argument for why they think that, you know, they don't like you or that you're posting bad stuff. They just have to report to abuse. <laughs> It's, a, it's an eye was That was me thinking I look like David Beckham. I can't believe it. <laughs> no, it's absolutely gold, mate. Um, I think we'll, we'll we'll call it a day there. But how do you how do you deal with the trolls out of interest? Because it's never something I've ever come across. I don't have a following, but you know, I guess when you get a bit more high profile, it's just natural. But what what sort of mindset do you get in to deal with these guys? Man, I I literally don't care. Like I really don't. It's you know if. I believe in what I'm talking about and if people don't like that that's fine they have their opinion I do the yeah. one thing that does bother me I don't care if people are offensive to me but what does bother me is when people insinuate what I'm thinking like they're like oh you think this and it's like well no I don't and yeah. I tell you what I think so you know what I think like you don't have to just insinuate that I'm thinking a certain way like that's that does wind me up but yeah I don't have anyone blocked on Twitter now I don't think I did have a couple of people blocked because they blocked me and then I blocked them back because they were like unblocking me posting something and then blocking me again and they got loads of followers and it was like why are you doing that that's just, just embarrassing yeah. so um but yeah I, I don't have anyone blocked anymore so I literally I'm reading all these comments and most of them make me laugh to be honest <laughs> fair play mate <laughs> yeah so I'm, I think we should wrap that up it's been been a good pod um Hopefully, what we're going to do going forwards is um, me and Tony will try and do a recap maybe every Sunday night of just the golf news and events. We'll have a little chat about life um, and I'll bring in interviews here where wherever I can. And yeah, hopefully you enjoy it and you keep listening because we enjoy it. And yeah, it's, it's fun. Cheers, Tom. Thanks for having me on, mate. And keep up the good work. Cheers, Tom. It's been emotional. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.